Today I'm sharing with you a continuation of the message that we began last week, which is coming after Christ through daily death. And we will once again be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23. So if you have your Bible, please find your way to Luke chapter 9, and we'll pick up there in verse 23 here in just a few moments. But some of you may recognize the name Ernest Hemingway. A Hemingway was an American icon in the last century. He was a remarkable man. He had a, an adventurous lifestyle that so many individuals admired. He found fame and fortune and respect that many individuals would see as the ultimate objectives, the ultimate goals of life. Beginning his writing career as a journalist, he, he later moved on to write short stories before he eventually became a novelist. And many of his writings, such as The Old Man in the Sea or A Farewell to Arms and, and For Whom the Bell Tolls, these would be recognized as classics of American literature. Hemingway won a Pulitzer Prize. He also won a Nobel Prize. He left news reporting when World War I began so that he could drive an ambulance along the front lines. A few months later, he was seriously wounded there in the midst of that war but still he was able in his injury to assist Italian soldiers to safety which then earned him at only the age of 18 the Italian civil silver medal of bravery he came back to America and he had this exciting life as a big game hunter he was a bullfighter he was a sports fisherman catching marlin and then when World War II came he didn't want to be left out, so he took his fishing boat and he rigged it with two 50 caliber machine guns, bazookas, hand grenades, and he would cruise off of the coast of Cuba just hoping that a German U-boat submarine would, would bring itself to the surface so that he could sink it. Hemingway was a daring man. He survived two successive plane crashes as he went on a safari to Africa. He survived a car accident that broke both of his arms. His life was full of escapades. He lived in France. He lived in Italy. He lived in Cuba. He lived in Key West. He lived in Idaho. Not sure why, but he lived in Idaho. He lived life to the fullest in many individuals' eyes. At 21 years of age, he married his first wife, and then he moved to Paris. One of his biographers writes that Hemingway at this point had achieved everything he had hoped for the love of a beautiful woman a comfortable income a life in Europe but Hemingway never seemed to be satisfied in fact he took his pursuit of satisfaction into the realm of alcoholism and he found himself an alcoholic he went through four marriages at the end of his life as as his time on earth approached its end, he reflected in one of his novels how the lives of humans were similar to the lives of ants on the end of a burning log who were destined for death and destruction. And sadly, this man, who had all he thought that he could ever want and all that so many others thought that they could ever want, ended his own life with a shotgun to his head just seven years after he won the Nobel Peace Prize. 
He did so much during his lifetime on earth. He was so full of adventure and excitement and fame and fortune. His life was so full of this excitement that so many of us would pursue. But it's clear that in the end, what seemed to be such a full life proved to, in fact, be an empty life. It was a life that was full of substance, but low on purpose. And it's so sad to see how all around us, people are striving for the things that this world says bring fulfillment, only to come up with their tanks on E. Some individuals are struggling with a sense of insignificance and hopelessness because the things that they thought they wanted proved to be faulty treasures once they were obtained. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here and you're struggling with disappointments that you've encountered in some facet of your own life. Maybe you've thought, if I can just get that job, or if I can just have that relationship, or if I can just achieve that goal, then finally I'll attain some level of significance. Then life will be worth something to me. But all you've gained as you were after what you were striving for is emptiness. You you found that it was empty. Well, God has a word for you today because in our passage today, God shows us how we can gain all that this world has to offer and still come up starving for what we really need. And the cure for that longing is only found as we come after Christ by dying to ourselves daily. That's what we began to investigate last week in this passage in Luke chapter 9, starting verse 23. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, and then he lays down these stipulations of what every disciple must be willing to do if he or she wants to come after Jesus. And we talked last week about how Jesus, in calling for individuals to come after him, has just, in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, explained to his disciples that he is about to go to Jerusalem. They've confessed him as the Christ, and now he's refining for them their understanding of what the Messiah would do, what this anointed prophet, priest, and king would do. And as he explains that to them, he tells them that he is going to Jerusalem, where he will be mocked and rejected and crucified and buried and ultimately resurrected. And so there's a certain element here, obviously, in which Jesus, when he's calling for his disciples to come after him, he's telling them that if you want to come after me, he's he's telling them that if you want to conquer the grave in the same way that I'm about to go conquer the grave, just as I've described for you in these previous verses. That's certainly an aspect of what he's talking to his disciples about here. But we also looked into the farewell discourse of John's gospel last week. And then we saw how Jesus so clearly taught his disciples that he would be soon returning to his heavenly father. And he he so richly and so clearly explained to them that as he went to the heavenly father, he was going to prepare a place for them. And that he would return so that he could take them to himself. And he even prays to the father that they would be with him where he is. And so there's an element here, which is obviously Jesus is saying that if you want to come after me, what he's saying in that, he's saying, if you want to go to the place where I'm going, if you want to go to this place that I'm preparing for you, if you want to receive eternal life, if you want to go to my heavenly father, then here's the way to prepare for that. 
And ultimately what Jesus shows us here is this call to a life of purpose. This call to a life that is discovered as we come after him through daily death. So let's read this passage once again as we jump into the second half of this message on coming after Christ through daily death. We'll be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23. If you're able, I ask that you would stand that we might honor the reading of God's word together. Verse 23, and he, that is Jesus, was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Herein is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. And as I began last week, I see in this passage three commands for those who wish to come after Jesus. We covered the first of those last week, and we'll dig deeper into the other two this week. But let's begin just by refreshing our memory a little bit on what that first command was for coming after Jesus. Do you want to come after Jesus? Here's the first command for those who wish to come after him. You must carry your cross daily. That's so clearly what Jesus says in verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone, and and we talked about how that means every Christian, not just a select few, if anyone wants to come after Jesus, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. And we discussed last week the daily choices that a crucified Christian must make. Every Christian must resolve daily to say, today I choose to deny myself. Today I choose to sacrifice myself. And today I choose to surrender myself. And if you want to come after Christ, you must carry your cross daily. You must come after him with a daily death. That's what Jesus so clearly puts on display there in verse 23. And ultimately, this boils down to one ambition for every single Christian. We must do do a game that you you might have played when you were a kid, right? We must follow the leader. We must follow the leader. That, That is the simple command. If we're following Jesus, then we will not shrink back in going to do where he, going to do what he calls us to do, going to the places where he calls us to go. And this becomes our heavenly hope as well, my friends, because where has Jesus gone? He has gone to be with the Heavenly Father. And as we pursue him, as we follow him, we are going to where he is. This is our ultimate ambition. And so this first command for those who would come after Jesus is that you must carry your cross daily. But then we also see secondly in this passage that you must lose your life temporarily you must lose your life temporarily jesus gives us a couple of apparent paradoxes at least that's the way it seems to us in these challenging statements that he makes here in verse 24 
That's where Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will what? Lose it. That's right. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So ultimately, what Jesus compels us to do here is to lose our lives. This is a continuation of Christ's call for us to come after him through daily death. And I see here three implications of losing your life in this way. The first implication is this. You can't keep what you can earn. You can't keep what you can earn. The first striking statement that Jesus makes in verse 24 is whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And the Greek word that's translated save in this passage, by the way, also carries this meaning of rescuing something from destruction or rescuing something from danger or keeping something safe and sound. In fact, the New Living Translation translates the first half of this verse in verse 24. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. Furthermore, the Greek word that's translated lose here in this passage could also be translated as destroy or put to death. Jesus is saying here, whoever wishes to rescue his life from destruction must destroy his life. He's saying whoever wishes to keep his life safe must be willing to put his life to death. He's saying all of these things. All the things that we could earn by our own efforts. All the things that we pursue in our daily lives. He's saying that out of all of those things, there is one thing that we cannot earn. And it is life. True life. Enduring life. If we spend our lives here on earth trying to save our own skin, Jesus is telling us we're going to miss true life. And there's a real danger here for each and every one of us. The danger that we all face is that we can protect ourselves. We can advance our objectives and we can miss the real purpose for why God has placed us here. We can miss the true purpose of life. We can save our lives here and now and we can ultimately lose them. It is possible, my friends, for you to lay hold of all that you've dreamed of here in this world and then to come to the end and realize that you cannot take it with you into eternity. It's possible to come to the end of life and to realize that you burned up your life pursuing the things that provide no lasting meaning in the present or hope for the future. And you know this. I mean, they don't build storage facilities on graveyards, do they? You're not likely to see a moving truck driving in a funeral procession. Because ultimately you cannot take these things with you. The material stuff that we gather here on earth does not go with us. And so our accumulation of stuff will not save us. Nor will our own efforts of self-righteousness, our own good works... Our own deeds, our own strivings to make ourselves right with God will never be enough. Jesus says, if you wish to save your life by your own efforts and through your own righteousness, you will lose it. And the trademark characteristic of a disciple, my friends, is that he denies himself. He crucifies himself for the glory of God. 
self-indulgence, they're trying to earn God's favor by following all of the rules, is a sure recipe for losing your life in this world. And it's interesting because we live in a world that is all about finding the safe and the comfortable and the materialistic things. Do we not? A recent survey found that 87% of Americans agree with the statement that nothing makes them happier or more confident than feeling like their finances are in order. 87%. The supreme happiness, that the supreme confidence that they would attain would be that their finances would be in order. Now look, I'm not calling you to live recklessly in your finances. But if that's the source of your security, then you've missed what Jesus is calling us to. That's an elusive sort of security. And there are many others who are striving to save themselves. They see this great scale that they assume God is weighing out their good works versus their bad works. And oh, if I've got enough good works on that scale, then God's going to let me into his heaven. None of our deeds are righteous enough for restoring us to him. He is so holy. He is so worthy of all of our devotion that the slightest thing that we have done is worthy of his eternal condemnation. And yet, my friends, he extends to us grace. He extends to us what we could not earn on our own. And so I say, are you striving to save yourself? Do you think you've got enough good things on your scale to weigh things in favor with God? Or or maybe you think that you've got enough money in the bank account or a big enough house or a secure enough alarm system or enough Purell and Lysol to kill every germ within a one mile radius. That's not going to save you and make your life secure. Or do you think that you're good enough on your own, that your efforts to do good deeds for others are providing you the way of eternal safety? In either one of those cases, if you are trying to save your life, you are destined to be a loser in the end according to what Jesus is revealing for us here. Because you can't keep what you can earn. That's the first implication of losing your life. Here's the second one. You can't earn what you can keep. In the second half of verse 24, Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. He's not saying that there's no way to be saved. No, instead he's saying that the true way to be saved, the true way to find your safety, the true way to find a rescue that lasts, the true way of finding life that you can keep is by losing your life for his sake. And that's why I included the words temporarily here as we describe here this second command for those who wish to come after Jesus. You must lose your life temporarily. But ultimately, Jesus extends to us real life, eternal life. Have you ever noticed how sometimes the people who have the fewest things are the people who seem to be the most satisfied? I traveled to Haiti one summer when I was in seminary. And I went to work among orphans at a Christian orphanage. I mean, mean, this was not long after the great earthquake of Haiti. And so some of the orphans who were there were orphaned by the very fact that they're Parents had been crushed by these concrete buildings that had come showering down on their heads because they just don't have the building infrastructure that we have here in Haiti. And even when I went to Haiti, as we drove down the long roads outside of Port-au-Prince, this main city where the airport was, as we, as we drove to the city, which we were going to, 
outside of town. There were just miles and miles and miles of what individuals would call tent cities, but really it was just nothing more than a tarp that individuals had thrown over some sticks, and individuals were living here, had been living here for years. And yet when we came to the orphanage in Haiti, this, this place where Christ was so regularly proclaimed and where these young ones had grown in his nurture, every face was smiling. I mean, I try to compare that with what we have in our kids here in America and so often, or our adults as well. Let, let's take a little ownership of this, all right? I mean, so often, it's just like, oh, life's so bad to me, and they've got a thousand more things than these Haitian kids could ever have, and yet every one of them had a smile on their face. They had no money, no position, no fame, no honors, but they did give testimony that they had one thing, they had Jesus, and that was enough for them. And I just ask you, my friends, is that enough for you? Here in America, I'm so often surrounded by people who have so much more, and yet they are miserable. And I say, if you're satisfied with Jesus, life itself and the accomplishment that it offers will not sway your ultimate goals and your ultimate dreams. Pleasing Jesus is all that matters. And so I plead with you to find meaning here and hope beyond that is not contingent on the stuff that this world offers. I urge you to be willing to lose your life here and now in order to gain life that truly satisfies. And what you'll find is this. The individuals who live their lives focused on others, crucifying their self-centeredness, trusting in God's provisions, those are the ones who are truly, genuinely happy. And their happiness is not contingent on whether or not the bank account has enough money in it. Their happiness is not contingent upon whether or not the job succeeds in the long haul. Their happiness is not based upon whether or not this relationship works out in the end. Their happiness is placed in Christ and he is steadfast and true and he is coming again and that is enough. And if you entrust your life to Jesus, die to your own pursuits and relay his grace to others, your life will not be depleted. Your life will be as fulfilling as it can be. We've already seen Jesus talking about those who give up pleasures temporarily will find treasures eternally. That's what he talked back in Luke chapter 6. Jesus had just called his disciples. He just appointed 12 of them to be apostles, that they would be with him. Then he comes down off this mount where he's appointed them, and he starts to teach them. We preached a sermon series on this called Discipleship 101. The first words that he speaks to his disciples is he prepares them for this new life of discipleship. Come there in Luke chapter 6 as he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil. For the sake of the Son of Man, be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But then he flips the script and says, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. 
And friends, I just want to urge you, don't waste your life on things that you cannot keep. Invest in what will endure beyond the grave. Live your life now to gain eternal life as Christ comes to grant the same. Put your faith, my friends, where God put your sins. Put your faith where God put your sins. By that I mean put your faith on Jesus. God has placed your sins on Him. And when you put your faith where God put your sins, you lose your life for His sake. You say, I'm no longer going to try to save myself. I am relying on Jesus. And God cloaks you in righteousness when you are found by faith in the righteous one. This is not from Jesus a call for us to roll up our sleeves and to try harder. This is not a call for us to try and work our way into heaven. You can't do that. We are not instructed to try. We are instructed to die. Jesus has done all of the trying that needs to be done. And he has won the victory. Die to yourself and find life in him. And don't miss the reason why we die to self. It's for Jesus' sake. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. This is not a call to live a lousy life with no joy. This is not a call to lock yourself in your basement and be sure that you don't enjoy anything. When Jesus calls you to, to take up your cross daily, when he calls for you to lose your life, he's not calling for you to do these things, to deprive yourself of anything that would have any sort of joy. No, he's calling you to live a full life for his sake. For his sake, we must forsake ourselves. And my friends, he is worthy of that. And so will you die to yourself? Will you say by the life you live for his sake, I will forsake my own life? That's the second implication of losing your life in this way. Here's the third. You must decide whether you will pursue that which you can't keep or that which you can't earn. It's clear that each of us can only have one ultimate treasure in this world. If it's our goal to gain the whole world, then we are not going to deny our selfish desires. We are not going to take up our cross. We are not going to die daily if we are pursuing the things which are our own ambitions. Taking up a cross requires for us to put to death ourselves and our selfish desires. Those things have no value that endures. And Jesus makes it so clear in verse 25. That's where he says, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You see, this is a call to each of us to decide which of those we will ultimately pursue. Will we pursue... That thing which we cannot earn or will we ultimately pursue the thing which God himself alone can earn? Suppose for a moment that you could stockpile all of the gold, all of the silver in the whole world. Suppose that you could own your own real estate, all the real estate that there is, all the property, all the stocks, all the bonds, everything of material value. Suppose that in your frantic effort to acquire all of this you miss the true purpose of life. What good would any of that be to you? You would have it only for a short while. 
and then you would leave it forever behind. It would be an insane bargain for anyone to sell his or her one short life for just a few toys whose former glory will forever be laid in the dust. And look, friends, Jesus is not trying to deprive you here. He's looking out for you. He doesn't want you to forfeit yourself. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26 and and Mark chapter 8 verse 37, there are parallel accounts of what Jesus is saying here. And both of those add Jesus saying these words, What will a man give in exchange for his soul? I'll just ask you, how much is your soul worth to you? And and, And I want you to understand this. There's no question as to how much your soul is worth to the Lord of heaven. There is no question as to how much your soul is worth to him. What is it that determines an item's worth? It's how much an individual will pay for it, right? I mean, if I have an item and I'm trying to sell that item, and and I might say, well, you know, I paid a lot of money for that. I mean, it doesn't matter if nobody's willing to pay that for it, right? It's not worth what I paid for it. It's worth what someone else is willing to pay in that transaction. Likewise, if someone comes along to me later and says, okay, I want to offer you 10 times what you paid for that. I'm not going to say, well, it's not worth that, you know. It's worth what, it, what, what the person is willing to pay for that thing. And you know, you are incredibly valuable. I don't care who you are or what you've done because Jesus has great value in you you are incredibly valuable to him how do i know that because jesus christ the infinitely worthy word of god who took on flesh and lived a sinless life has paid a great price for you he has paid his very life so that he could have you as his own and the death of god's only son is the proof that god places a great value on you you are worth more than your weight in diamonds or gold, my friends. Jesus has shown that by his own life given for you. And we must come to realize that losing all the trinkets of life here and now is worth doing if it enables us to follow the infinitely worthy one who has shown us how much he loves us and values us. We must come to realize that suffering for Jesus is more valuable than attaining worldly achievements. And that is why I say you must lose your life temporarily because Christ extends to you eternal life and calls for you to join his self-denying mission to save the world here and now. That's the second command for those of us who want to come after Jesus. Here's the final one. You must shed your shame promptly. You must shed your shame promptly. Can you imagine Jesus returning to earth as the glorious king that he is only to be ashamed and to say of you, I am ashamed of that one. Jesus says in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. That's a frightening thing. To think that Jesus would return and be ashamed of me. And that's why you must shed your shame promptly. Let me give you three confessions of a shame shedder here. The first is this. I am not ashamed of Jesus. 
Is that your confession? I am not ashamed of Jesus. It doesn't matter how this world judges the success of your life. Your obituary doesn't have the final say on how successful your life has been. The final word comes when Jesus comes and renders a decision on whether you have forsaken all else to trust him. Why would we be ashamed to confess the one who was not ashamed to die on the cross for us? If we will not confess Jesus before men, then it shows that we have more care for the praise or the fear of men than we care for the praise or fear of God who has set his rescue plan in order for us and who is coming again to restore us forevermore. And that would be a coward's position. It's proof of unbelief. All the hope that it leaves on the day of judgment, according to what Jesus says here, is that an individual will be disowned by Christ for all of eternity. Who can help the person? who has been disavowed by Christ himself. No one. This is no simple matter. This is an eternal matter that Jesus is talking about here. But what's the opposite of being ashamed of someone? It's to be proud of someone, is it not? Being proud of an individual is the opposite of shame. When you are not ashamed of someone, you're not embarrassed to be seen with them. In fact, you love to be identified with them. This doesn't mean that if you slip up and have a momentary lapse like Peter did, that you're going to be forever cast away. But it does mean that if your heart is in a settled state, that you're ashamed of Jesus, then he will be ashamed of you. And you will be sent away from him with the people who consider him to be an embarrassment. When Jesus comes in his glory, the one who is ashamed of him will not come after him. The materialist will not be welcomed into the glory of the Son of God and the glory of the Father and the glory of the angels. Why? Because Jesus will be ashamed of him. And that is a tough truth for us to endure. But it's a truth that also calls for us, my friends, to say, I am not ashamed of Jesus. I will proudly represent him wherever I go. I will not let others speak poorly of him because I am proud of him. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. And so the shame shedder confesses, I am not ashamed of Jesus. Secondly, he confesses, I am not ashamed of Jesus' words. Jesus doesn't just say that whoever is ashamed of him will be ashamed by him. He also says that whoever is ashamed of his words will be ashamed by him. You cannot separate Christ from his words. You can't say that you love Jesus, but you're ashamed of his teachings. You can't divide his words from who he is. When you disown his words, you disown him. And an interesting tidbit in what's happening at the church at large. So this is outside of our realm, and it's easy for us sometimes to point the finger, but the point finger, finger comes back to us here in just a moment. Last Tuesday, voting members of the United Methodist Church gathered in St. Louis, Missouri, to vote on whether or not they should remove the language from that denomination's book of discipline which restricts pastors and churches from conducting same-sex weddings and annual conferences from ordaining self-avowed, practicing homosexual persons. The push to remove this language was driven by those who see the sexual revolution that has been so rampant in our culture as a threat to the unity of the church. And so ultimately, they would say that their perspective is they want to bring unity. They don't want individuals divided over this sexual issue. And so many individuals, especially in America, were pushing for what was known as the one church plan. 
included in their number were 93 United Methodist College and Seminary presidents. This includes presidents from Duke and Boston University and Emory, among others. They voted unanimously to ask the church to join the sexual revolution. They pushed a plan of compromise which sought to allow local congregations and conferences which sought to allow their own congregations to pursue their own sexual ethics, they sought to allow them to remain a part of the United Methodist Church while dividing that decision up among other bodies. Each body would be allowed to pursue its own sexual ethics. And they did that because they thought that would keep the denomination at large unified as each location made its own decision about which way to go. But in pursuit of this unity, the church would have been clearly taking a road which opposes the Bible and 2,000 years of Christian teachings in order to accommodate those local congregations and conferences who wish to join in this sexual revolution by redefining what God defines as sin as something that is normal and ordaining those who are open in sin as ministers in the local church. Now the other option which was on the ballot there in St. Louis was to reaffirm the language that's currently in the book of discipline, which would continue to ground sexual ethics of the United Methodist Church in God's Word. Ultimately, the vote to keep the current language that reiterated what God's Word says uh, won by a narrow 53% to 47% margin. And so I commend our brothers and sisters in the United Methodist Church for their willingness to say that we are going to stand true to what God's Word says in the practice of weddings and ordination. But I think it's also insightful to note that this vote only went the way that it did because of the influence of African United Methodists. Over the last several decades, the majority of growth that has happened within the United Methodist Church has been in international churches, predominantly in Africa. And the growth of African Christians in the United Methodist Church has outpaced the rate of American surrender to the sexual revolution. Some American church leaders are not happy about how this shift in power has taken place, as you might imagine. And so they've grown in their disdain for the African brothers and sisters of the United Methodist Church, and they've lectured them for their unwillingness to grow up. They've lectured them for their willingness to stay in what would be considered a backwards past, They called for them to get on board with the sexual revolution of the West. And some have even reverted to demeaning their brothers and sisters in Africa as though they are only members of the denomination because they want American financial support. And I say all of that just to bring you to this article that I read this past week. I read one African Methodist words this week, which have some really interesting intersections around what Jesus is calling us to in this passage here today, of not being ashamed of Christ in his words and not maintaining a fixation on worldly treasure. And, and this uh, African Methodist individual's name is Dr. Cherry, Jerry Kula. He's an African Methodist who's the dean of the School of Theology at United Methodist University in Liberia. So he holds some pretty high-level position there in Africa, and he spoke at a breakfast gathering in St. Louis uh, leading up to the General Conference, which was just eight days ago, by the way. His speech was eight days ago. The vote was last Tuesday. In his address, he acknowledges the need to extend God's grace to all people. 
He acknowledges that we are all sinners who need God's redemption. He further makes it clear that he and his African church peers warmly welcome all people into their churches, longing to be in fellowship with them, praying for them, weeping over them, experiencing the joy of transformation with them. The same sort of thing that we see spread throughout this body. And then he makes it clear that the battle that the church was up against was this battle. He says it with these words, friends, please hear me. We Africans are not afraid of our sisters and brothers who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, questioning, or queer. We love them and we hope the best for them. But we know of no compelling arguments for forsaking our church's understanding of Scripture and the teachings of the church universal. I want to be clear as I read these words that I agree with Dr. Kalua on all of these points. I agree that, that ultimately I would love to have any individual, no matter what their status may be, coming to this place to pursue Christ. That, that, that I would also agree that we are all sinners and that this sin is no worse than any other sin that you and I are battling in. The clear distinction that is happening here in this event, in this culture, in this society is that individuals are trying to redefine sin as though it is normal. Individuals are trying to tell others that it's okay not to take up your cross. It's okay to pursue your own passions. It's okay to pursue your own desires. It's okay not to do what Jesus calls us to do in this passage and die to yourself. And, and, and my friends, there, there are so many other sins that we harbor in ourselves that aren't as public as this. And I realize that sometimes we make too much of an emphasis out of this one particular issue. But at the same time, this is the one where the battle lines have been drawn so clearly in our day. And we cannot sit back and ignore what the world is trying to do in redefining sin as normal. And so let me just be clear that I agree with Dr. Kula on these points. The issue before the United Methodists is an issue that each and every one of us faces in Christians, as Christians in this society, that is so quick to rush to affirm as good that which God affirms as sinful. And that's happening on a number of fronts. Not just in human sexuality, but sexual ethics, as I said, continue to be the most boisterous battleground in this space. But make no mistake, the deceiver is trying to deceive us into thinking that God doesn't have our best interests in mind by laying out the boundaries of how we should live as his creatures. And Dr. Kula and his African counterparts recognize the battle. They recognize that we all need grace. We're all sinners. We all need to die to ourselves. We cannot be ashamed of Christ and his words and still be followers of his. And so I must say that I am encouraged by our brothers and sisters in Africa who are standing firm on the conviction of God's word as others seek to redefine sin. So let me just quote for you quickly a few other bits of Dr. Kula's address to show the heart of these brothers and sisters. He says, please hear me when I say graciously as I can. We Africans are not children in need of Western enlightenment when it comes to the church's sexual ethics. We do not need to hear a progressive U.S. bishop lecture us about our own need to grow up. We Africans, whether we have liked it or not, have had to engage in this debate for many years now. We stand with the global church, not a culturally liberal church elite in the U.S. 
We stand with thousands of other United Methodists across Africa who have heard no compelling reasons for changing our sexual ethics, our teachings on marriage, and our ordination standards. We are grounded in God's word and gracious and clear teachings of our church. On that, we will not yield. We will not take a road that leads us from the truth. We will not take the road that leads us to making that we will take the road that leads to the making of disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And man, there are many of us who are grounded in God's word here in America who it would be right for us to agree with Dr. Kula on so much of that. But he had a bit of a punch to the stomach in these words as well when it comes to all of us. For his address went on with these words. He said, unfortunately, some United Methodists in the U.S. had the very faulty assumption that all Africans are concerned about is the U.S. financial support. Well, I'm sure, being sinners like all of you, some Africans are fixated on money. But with all due respect, a fixation on money seems to be more of an American problem than an African one. We get by on far less than most Americans do. We know how to do it. I'm not so sure you do. So if anyone is so naive or condescending as to think that we would sell our birthright in Jesus Christ for American dollars, then they simply do not know us. We are seriously joyful in following Jesus Christ and God's holy word to us in the Bible. And in truth, we think that many people in the U.S. and in parts of Europe could learn a great deal from us. Please understand me when I say that the vast majority of African United Methodists will never, ever trade Jesus and the truth of the Bible for money. I am not ashamed of his words. That is the second confession of a shame shedder. Here's the final one. I am looking for Jesus' coming. Make no mistake, my friends. Jesus is coming again in his glory. A glorious second coming of the Son of Man is just around the bend. This will happen. My friends, let this be your motivation now to daily live for Christ. Matthew chapter 16 verse 27 records that Jesus also said that when he comes again, the Son of Man will then repay every man according to his deeds and my friends i just want to summarize by saying the greatest deed that you could ever do would be to lose your life for him now to say i've decided to follow jesus and this world's got nothing nothing that can keep me from that pursuit i will lose my life so that i might save it i will entrust my life to the only one who is righteous, the only one who has paid the way, the only one who extends gracious, eternal life, the only one who can transform me from a life of sin, the sin that every one of us struggles with, the sin that is so common to our human condition, the only one who can break the power of that sin and restore us to God and give us new life and new purpose is the one who calls for us now to die to ourselves and to pursue him and that's a high calling my friends 
But nothing less than daily death is what Christ demands of each and every one of us. And so I say, my friends, let us bind together with a greater passion. Let us bind together with a greater hope. Let us bind together knowing that Jesus is coming again. And let us die to ourselves until we see him face to face and rejoice that he is not ashamed of us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, you're calling in these words. It's such a sacrificial calling for us. I mean, you call us to die to who we are. You call us to die to all that this world offers. You call us to pursue you with a, with a heart that's going to say that ultimately you're greater than any of that. And yet, Lord, you're worthy. You are so worthy of that. You, you've shown yourself to be so faithful. You've granted to us such a great salvation. You give us a hope that this world can't touch, Lord. God, help us, each and every one, to examine the idols of our hearts. Help us to examine the things which draw us away from you. Help us to examine and to identify the things that we are pursuing that are less than what we'll endure. And Lord, help us to cast those things away. Help us to put them to death. Help us to pursue you, O Lord, knowing that you give what we really need. We thank you that Jesus has indeed come, that he has conquered death that where the time life of our life ends here on earth that where the time life of the value of the possessions that we have ends here on earth you have conquered that time because you have overcome the grave and you've provided for us a hope that endures beyond death and oh lord give us eyes to see that give us hearts to pursue that Father, as we close in these final moments, if there are decisions that need to be made, if there are individuals who need to come and say, Lord, I've been pursuing the wrong things. I've been trying to save myself. I've been trying to provide comfort and luxury here and now when the reality is you've got so much more in store for me. Then God, I pray you give courage that we would not be ashamed, that this would not be a final moment of shame when individuals sulk back into their seats, but when individuals would step forward and say, I am proud to be identified with Jesus. He is my Lord. So Father, you do in each heart what only you can do by the power of your spirit and guide us into the decisions you would call us to make. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.